If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In today's episode, you'll hear from the historian and broadcaster David Oloshoga. He's the presenter of the BBC Two series, A House Through Time, which tells the story of a single home and its occupants throughout the lifetime of the building. The third series begins tomorrow and focuses on the city of Bristol, which happens to be David's hometown and also the location of our office. Our editor, Rob Attar, caught up with David a few days back to discuss some of the themes of the new series and the advantages of exploring history through the story of just one house. What's the process of choosing a house for this series and how much of the stories that will appear in the series are you aware of early on? Um, We have very little idea early on. What we do is we decide on a city. And in this case, we knew we wanted to come to Bristol. And so we were able to do something we weren't able to do in the previous series, which was to actually ask people's help. So we spoke to local media. We spoke to um, the BBC in Bristol. um, We spoke to Bristol 24-7. And we asked people to, to suggest houses, which is great. So we had that process going on. But we also 
did what we've always do, which was we um, we find historic areas of cities, we speak to local historians, and then we target certain streets where we know the housing stock is of a certain age, we know the the trajectory of that part of the city, and we know that we're likely to find houses that will work for us. And we literally put leaflets through people's doors. Because not only do we have to find a house that is going to work historically, we also have to find people who are the current residents who are willing to let a bunch of people film in their house, which takes weeks and weeks and weeks, but also do the very brave thing of starting a journey of discovery about their home that no one knows where it's going to lead. Because we begin with a vague sketch. We start work when we think we can make this house work as a four-part series, and we find it a lot along the way. Having watched the series, and I won't give away any spoilers, but so many incredible events took place at this house. I mean, would this apply to most houses of this age, or is this a really atypical house? Well, we've looked at far more houses over three series of House of the Time than we've obviously filmed. And it's beginning to seem like most houses of a certain age have at least some remarkable stories. And in some ways, that's not that surprising when you think about the tumultuous events of a house that's 200 years old or 300 years old in this case, and what the city that stands in has been through. It's probably not that big a surprise that the people who lived in that resident will have been part of those enormous events. What we have to do is we have to find a house that can work across four episodes, as I said, and that's the real challenge. We found houses where episodes one and two would be astonishing. And then, you know, life's a bit quieter in the sort of late 19th or the 20th centuries. And that wouldn't work as a series because it wouldn't be that interesting for the second half. So, we often find houses that kind of half work or three quarters work. The hard thing is finding a house that has remarkable events through all stages of its history. Unlike previous series, this one is based in in your hometown, also actually my hometown. Did that affect how you approached it, perhaps the preconceptions of the kind of stories you might tell? It didn't. I mean, we had two briefs. We wanted an older house. The previous houses had both, one was 1820, one was 1840s. We wanted a house that was older, and this house is a century older. We wanted to be in the 18th century, because arguably, if you're coming to Bristol, if you aren't here for the 18th century, you've missed, in some ways, the most dynamic part of the city's history. That's not to say Bristol did not have a dynamic 19th century, but it was in the 18th century that Bristol was really vying with London and and Glasgow as being the second city um, of the nation. That's the sort of most, I think, seismic stage in Bristol's history, not just in terms of population growth, because the 19th century population growth is enormous, but in terms of trade growth, the Atlantic trade, obviously, but by all sorts of measures, Bristol's kind of dynamic age is the 18th century. So we knew we wanted a house that was going to capture that phase of the city's history. But we also wanted to find a house that reflected the the Blitz. When I came to Bristol 20 years ago, the thing that really struck me was how much Bristol had been shaped and affected by the Blitz. So we wanted that history to be part of this story as well. And then how much does the fact that Bristol is a port city affect the history of the occupants in this house? Well, it's not, as it has been in the case um, of other houses, a history 
uh, with a great deal of migration. In Liverpool, as you might expect, a city famous for immigration and emigration, we had much more stories that were sort of international in, in, in that sense. The way it affects the story in Bristol is it's about the centrality of the port. What I've become aware of making this series is that as somebody who's only known Bristol for the past 20 years, who's only known Bristol after the closure of the docks in 1975, I didn't quite get the extent to which the heart and soul of the city was the docks and the river traffic. That declined in the 1870s with the creation of Avonmouth and the port there. It's been a downward trajectory since then. But the lives of repeated generations of residents in this house are shaped by the docks. The house is close to the docks. People worked in the docks, either as merchants or as later on as, uh, as stevedores. So the centrality of waterborne trade, global trade, is absolutely threaded through the story of the house. And one of the most important trades to Bristol was, was, of course, a slave trade. And that does have a connection with the occupants of the house. I wonder if you could outline a little quite how important slavery was to Bristol's development. Well, I think one of the reasons why this conversation is always a difficult one to have in Bristol is because it's one of the chapters of Bristol's history that's been denied and obscured for so long. The reason it's controversial to talk about slavery is that we didn't talk about it for such a long time. But any honest, wholehearted discussion of Bristol's long history has to acknowledge that 2,000 slave expeditions left those docks, left our city, and carried probably around half a million Africans into slavery. Now, that's a fundamental reality of the history of Bristol that we all just need to confront. And I don't think this should be about guilt or blame. It's a heated debate, and I don't see why it really needs to be, because it's a fact. And it's unsurprising, I mean, really unsurprising, that an old house from the 18th century near the docks in Bristol is connected to the Atlantic slave trade. And it's not just... The slave trade. And that phrase in some ways, the transatlantic trade, is confusing because the connections, you could be connected to the Atlantic trade and working in Bristol in the 18th century and never set foot on a slave trading um, vessel, never go to Africa, never go to the Caribbean. You could be processing sugar that's returned from the Caribbean. You could be producing the goods that are taken to Africa and bartered for enslaved captives. All sorts of industries from a huge hinterland around Bristol are economically interconnected with the trade. So it's it's just not surprising that with 2,000 slave expeditions leaving between the 1690s and 1807, that this house near the docks, an expensive house built by merchants, is connected to the transatlantic slave trade and very connected, intimately connected. On a broader level, how far do the people's lives in this house reflect themes of British history? And are there moments where perhaps they challenge our conventional views of these events? I think what what I've found making three series of A House Through Time is that what you get is a journey through British history that is a social history inevitably, but it's it's quite unique because you you look at Britain through a very small keyhole, a single house in a single city, and what you get is this surprisingly expansive history. But what it is really is a history of of people living with 
the consequences of change and the consequences of great events. It's not a history of kings and queens and battlefields and generals and statesmen. It's not a very heroic history. It's a history of people who actually have to live with the realities of change. So it's a history of social change. It's a history of political upheaval, especially in the case of Bristol. Bristol is an extremely politically um, fractious city. It's got a long um, history of riots right up to 2011, when there was a riot over the opening of a, of a Tesco's in the city. That history is reflected. And also, you have to say, in, in all all series, all three series we've made, including this one, it's also a history of epidemic disease, which suddenly has a new resonance. We've had in the stories that we've done in the three series, we've had cholera, we've had tuberculosis, and we've had HIV AIDS. Those stories, looking back at the previous series and thinking about this series, those stories suddenly in some ways make us more aware that we're part of this history. History didn't end. We're not at the end of history. Um, we're living in a time very much like any others. And this is an experience that I think we now, you know, maybe it's easier to relate to our ancestors living under the shadow of disease than it was, say, six months ago. Now, the stories that you tell in the series are full of tragedy. Do you get a sense from that that life was generally much harder in, in the past? And, and how did the people cope with that? Well, I mean, again, I can't help thinking that when you deal with stories about short lives and little lives cut short by disease, that we are in a moment when our capacity to appreciate how people lived and how people thought about illness and health um, is being enormously radically readjusted because of what we're going through at the moment. I think the level of tragedy is probably what you would expect. It's an age when there is disease. It's an age when there's wars. I mean, through the 18th century, Britain is at war with somebody somewhere for some reason for most of the 18th century. And that reflects, um, on Bristol, the political fractiousness of the city that we have, you know, riots in the 1790s, in the 1830s, um, almost in the 1840s with Chartism, that these, these political forces, these epidemiological forces, they do enormously impact on people's lives. And I think you probably have this, an accurate reflection of the level of tragedy that, that you could expect. We know life expectancies were shorter in earlier centuries. We know that people lived under the shadow of disease. We know that life was more violent. People often talk about the increase of crime in the contemporary world. Well, you know, take a walk around an 18th century city and tell me it's less dangerous than today. Life was more violent. Life was more dangerous. And I think you see that in the lives of the people who live in this house. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. I can't imagine what it must be like to spend the night in a cellar underneath your house and then get up the next morning and walk through the city you've known your entire life and great swathes of it not being there anymore. Have you ever wondered what it's like to bite into nerds' gummy clusters? They're fruity. They're tangy. They're gummy. And they're crunchy. Nerds Gummy Clusters, a union of fruity sweet gummy and tangy crunchy nerds. Unleash your senses. Shop now at nerdscandy.com. Beyond the stories of the people themselves, what do you learn about how much houses themselves change over the centuries in their physical structure? Well, what I always love in this series is 
in each case, there's been a feature of the house, usually an adjustment, an alteration, that we need to work out why. And anyone who's ever lived in an old house that's got the the scars of some sort of alteration or works, that is just a mystery on a plate. And I think they're, they're absolutely fascinating. I mean, houses live a long time. They're adjustable. They're adaptable. They can be remade and repurposed for different ages, for different functions. I mean, one of the, the very contemporary things we're thinking about at the moment is the future of the office, as we're now all learning to work from home, or many of us are learning to work from home. Well, the story of many older houses in Britain is that they began as places as work and of um, residence. And then when the office and the factory became uh, the dominant places of work and the, the the life of work and the life of home became separated, they became purely residential. Well, that often leaves scars. What's really interesting to think if people were making this series in 100 years' time and they were looking at a house that had been through this current moment, what they might find, and I think what probably will happen, is there'll be a spate of alterations in the early 21st century as people start adapting their homes again to be places of work as well as residence. In some ways, the age of the office, the age of the factory, might be might be very much coming to a not an end but uh, a less central place in our lives and that will be reflected physically in our homes like other enormous um, social changes being reflected in our homes now over the course of the centuries i think you say in the series about 200 people have lived in this house were there any of them who left a particular mark on you well we have a story of a foundling i mean it's a tragic story but it's a great piece of history to be able to discuss you know, on primetime television because in a world without safety nets in the 18th century, children born to mothers who have no partner and no means of looking after their children, that, that phenomena of the foundling was a reality for millions of people. It's a reality that you can see in the, the foundling hospital in London. So that story, I mean, inevitably a child abandoned has an impact on me. But I'm also really struck by the story of the residents during the Blitz. I can't imagine what it must be like to spend the night in a cellar underneath your house and then get up the next morning and walk through the city you've known your entire life and great swathes of it not being there anymore. And that's exactly what happened to our residents in the, in the, um, in the early 40s. I live with the ghosts of the Bristol that was lost in 1940 and 1941, they were there at that terrible moment uh, when Bristol was devastated as, as, as badly as any city. Now, if somebody watches the series and is inspired to research the history of their own home, where would you recommend would be the best place to start? Well, if you're lucky enough to live in Bristol, I would start with an amazing resource we have, um, which is called Know Your Place. And the reason I say that is because it's maps. Um, maps are just the most magical things when it comes to the history of houses. When people talk about researching the houses, what I always say is you need to do something that makes you addicted to the process because it'll be frustrating as well as rewarding. And maps are, I think, the most addictive thing because what you see with looking at maps, and Ordnance Survey maps are fantastic for this because they tend to be 20, 30 years in between being being re- redrawn, is you get this snapshot, like a sort of broken movie reel, and you can see your house and the city developing around it. If you go further back, you can see the fields in which your house is going to be built. And then you can watch as empty fields become streets or factories or or, or suburbs. You can watch your house as a cell within an organism that's developing. And I think there's something immensely attractive to that. 
I've observed myself that if you present somebody with a Victorian map of the city they live in, the first thing they do is they look for their own house because it's just magical. You can watch the city developing around your house and you can see that your house is a sort of cell in a bigger organism. And that's that's incredibly attractive and an incredibly appealing thing. There's all sorts of kind of brilliant online maps that even in lockdown that people can get, get access to. There's the Ordnance Survey maps. There's lots of insurance maps that were produced that are often very detailed. There's the bomb maps from the Blitz, you know, that can show you how close the nearest bomb came to your house. So I'd always start with maps. But then the next place to go is newspapers, because if you want to see whether anything dramatic happened in your house, and there's a good chance something did, then, you know, look it up in newspapers, look up your street in newspapers. And there's lots of online, you know, British newspaper archives that can help you do this. There's an incredible rate of digitization of old newspapers going on at the moment. And those resources are becoming searchable, uh, even online, even in lockdown. This is the third series of A House Through Time, and, and it's been hugely popular so far. What do you think it is about this approach to history that appeals so much to us today? I think it's part of a move within history on television to not always be talking about the rich and famous, not always be talking about kings and queens and prime ministers and generals. Um, it's not that there's anything wrong with that. And that sort of top-down history is really important, that history of war and policy and uh, monarchy. And, you know, we all love... The Tudors, I'm sitting here, you know, reading Hilary Mantel's latest book. That's absolutely critically important history. But there's another form of history, social history, the history of people like us, that I think people are increasingly drawn to. And over the past decades, that's become one of the great frontiers of academic history, social history. And I think that this gives you, this gives you all of that. And I think what's important is that we've selected houses that for all sorts of reasons, end up with a wide range of people living in them. I think if we chose a house in a posh area of the city that had always been a posh area and all the people who'd ever lived there had been at the top of society, well-off, comfortable, I don't think it would be the same series and I don't think it would have the same appeal because all of these houses, you know, all of life is there. People come and go, rich people the servants who attend them, but also poorer people, people who come and live in more difficult times in that house and that district's history. That sort of slice of life, I think, is 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 really important. But also, I think we're quite nosy. We like lives of other people. And I think we also have an obsession with houses in this country. So the series that gives you a chance to kind of have a gawp around other people's house. And we all love that. I mean, most people on right move aren't thinking about moving house. They're doing what we all do. They're having a good gawp at other people's houses. It's a history of the series that gives you that and gives you what is almost, you know, we sometimes say not pejoratively, it's a soap opera. I think that's a winning combination. Gawping at houses and a real life soap opera, you know, it works for me. I find it fascinating. Obviously, this, this series is yet to run, but how were the previous series received in, in the cities they were filmed in? Anyone in television would like to believe that we know when things are going to work. We know when a series is going to be a hit. And obviously, we don't. We hope things are going to work. And when they do, we're pleased. And when they're not, we're a bit downhearted. But I don't think any of us who worked on A House of Time expected the reaction we had in the previous two series in Liverpool and Newcastle. Because what what the series allows is for four hours of primetime television to really indulge the history of one of our cities. And... 
we tell about the good times and the bad times. We really go out of our way to make the cities look as beautiful as they are. And watching this series, I think Bristol looks stunning. And I think what people respond to who live in those cities, and we know the viewing figures are incredibly high in those cities, what people respond to, I think, is being able to walk a bit taller, to be reminded that these cities that we're used to, that we see on the map, that we pass through on trains, that each of them have absolutely remarkable histories and that um, maybe we don't celebrate them too much. And we live in a country with an enormously dominant capital city. And maybe the stories of Liverpool, Newcastle, Bristol, maybe they haven't been trumpeted and, and shouted about enough. And this series, I think, um, taps into that sort of, that deep pride that we, we have in the cities that we live in. And assuming that there might be further series of A House Through Time, where in an ideal world would you like to go next? What I'd love us to do, which is a bit of an outlier, is I'd love us to find a house in Boston in America, because I think it'd be great to have a house that halfway through its history uh, changes country. And there's lots of old houses in Boston. So one day I'd love us to do that. But it doesn't seem very likely at the moment that we'd be flying off to the States. So maybe maybe in a, a distant future series. But, you know, to me, what matters is it's a series that, you know, I hope can run for further series for as long as it's popular and people want us to make it. You know, there's no shortage of houses and there's no shortage of incredible stories to tell through those houses. And just one final question, David. If and when you decide to move house again, will you be spending a long time looking at its history before you make a decision to buy? Well, the irony is, is that just before the first series was broadcast, I, for the first time as an adult, moved into a modern house. And I had lived in Victorian houses my entire adult life, all through being a student, and had been interested in their histories and had done some research on all of their histories. And for the cliched reasons of schools and children and all of that sort of stuff, moved into a modern house. So I'm now living in a house without a history, really. And that feels quite strange. It does feel like something's missing. And maybe I would say that as an historian. It is a wonderful thing to, have, to be able to ask yourself that question. Who lived here? What happened here? What was this street like in previous times? So I found myself instead getting into the history of the older houses on this street by a sort of, you know, process of a, a default process, um, rather than, uh, than look at the rather short history of this newly built house. That was David Oloshoga. A House Through Time begins tomorrow, the 26th of May, at 9pm on BBC Two, and it'll also be available on iPlayer after that. David's written a piece to accompany the series for the June issue of BBC History magazine. That's on sale now, and also contains articles on the Crusades, the last battle of World War II, an interview with Hilary Mantel, and a special feature on the 20 greatest mysteries of the past. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us next on Wednesday when Remy Amball will be discussing medieval prisoners of war. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.